Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. Holy cow, guys, I am blown away by this interview. My guest today is Taylor Branch, a Pulitzer Prize winning author for his book series, America in the King Years. He also wrote a book called The Clinton Tapes, in which he describes the nearly 80 sessions he had with President Bill Clinton during his two terms as president. Taylor is also mentioned in pretty much every Bobby Kennedy book, of which I've read around 10, whereas a 21 year old, he has an encounter with Bobby while he's running for president in 1968. Spoiler alert, Taylor was actually campaigning for Bobby's rival for the Democratic nomination. We talked for over an hour and a half, so I broke this into four episodes. In part one, we focus on his time spent with President Clinton. In part two, we discuss his books on Martin Luther King and the civil rights era, while also diving deep into the philosophy of nonviolence. In part three, we talk about his encounter with Bobby Kennedy. And then in part four, we talk about his book writing process and his favorite books of all time. Each section has amazing stories that you really won't want to miss. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. Now, let's hear part two of my interview with Taylor Branch. So, America in the King years, particularly Parting the Waters, um, that endeavor... I, I'm, I've got lots of things I want to ask you about that, but as you thought about tackling that, did it, was it always as massive in scope as it turned out to be, or, or did it grow over time? Like, did you sit down and say, oh yeah, the first compilation is going to be a thousand, like it's going to be just massive or, cause it is so thorough it's, and it's great. Did you know that when you started it? No, if I had, I never would have been allowed to do it by my wife among <laughs> others, um, uh, or my publisher. Um, um, the original contract was written for a three-year project uh, to be done in one in one volume. Uh, it was similar to the overall what turned out in the sense that it talked about Bob Moses and Diane Nash and a, and a broad scope that it wasn't going to be just about King, that I didn't feel qualified to write just about King. I wanted to write about him at the center of an era and the other people, including the presidents and, and, and even the FBI, the opponents um, uh, and the segregationists. Um, for me to say three years was a lot because the books I had done previously, none of them took more than a year and things were done uh, rapidly. You know, I'm trying to build up a reputation as a reliable writer who could deliver things in time for the publisher. Um, 
so when parting the waters took six years, uh, it was it was a big surprise. It, it was difficult. You know, I knew race was a big subject, um, and you know, I spent the first six months reading every book I could read on it, and then started going to libraries and um, realized very early that um, we're not comfortable enough with race in America yet. To, to put the real story in libraries <laughs> or stuff like that, that interviews and personal contact uh, were essential, uh, that, that it couldn't be just a documents uh, book. And in that sense, I feel very lucky that so many of the participants were still alive. I started 14 years after King was dead and a lot of people, uh, vital witnesses were already gone, but most of them were still around. So I, I consider myself lucky in retrospect that, enough time had passed to have a little bit of historical perspective on the 60s, just beginning, um, but there were still people that I could talk to. You know, it's, it's very controversial. I've been on campuses where historians will come up to me and say, you can't write history using interviews, that's journalism. Um, wow. Um, and, and that sort of thing. You know, there, 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 are, there are a lot of uh, sectarian views in the historical profession. Well, um... It's so interesting to me because um, you must have, like, as you talk to a Bob Moses, um, you must have, you must have been talking to him. You, you did get to interview him, correct? Many times, yes. Yeah. So, I'm guessing in a moment or two, you might have said, "There's a whole book in this guy." Of course, there is. Um, yes. Did you? How did you? Because now I'm also now I'm reading um, the new John Lewis book, uh, His Truth is Marching On. And, and I'm reading that having read Parting the Waters. And I'm thinking, my gosh, like when I read Parting the Waters, I thought so much detail on all these people. But then of course, clearly you couldn't put as much detail about John Lewis as a whole book on him. So how did you decide like, all right, I got to pull back on the story about Moses because I, otherwise I'll write a whole book on him. Well, that that's really hard. Those are those are really hard judgments. I mean, there are a lot of hard judgments when 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 you're trying to write narrative history. Um, you know, I had one rule, which was that I was going to use as few labels as possible. Um, if you read all three of the books, you won't find words like militant or racial racist uh, or anything like that uh, very often, unless. A few times I quote people saying that because I think those labels conceal more than they reveal and that and that they're just a, a way for people to put on armor to feel righteous. Um, and that it's really the more personal the stories are, the more revealing they are about what people really stand for and what they'll what they'll do and how they understand things. And Moses getting to know him was uh, was a revelation. Um, you know, he's still around. He, he's in the book I'm writing now. Um, you know, I still think that Moses is a vastly underappreciated historical uh, character. Um, so you have to make judgments not only about whose stories you're going to follow, but about whose reports you can believe. And how do you decide who's exaggerating and who's not? How do you decide what quotes, if you want to have quotes in a book, uh, are, are accurate. And other than obvious rules, like 
if somebody gives you a quote that doesn't make them look good and in fact makes them look bad, that's more likely going to be honest than one that makes them look like a genius. Um, <laughs> so they're standard little things like that. But, you know, I transcribed a lot of the interviews that I did uh, that were recorded. And um, w- one value of that was that you get a sense for how people speak, how Andy Young speaks, as opposed to Bob Moses or Julian Bond or uh, or Ralph Abernathy, uh, a lot of Diane Nash, a lot of those people. And uh, it helped evaluate the stories of, of, of what they said and did at critical moments. Yeah, no, and I, and I, and you did, you know, you quoted them a lot. So, um, but going back to your point of, 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 you know, people sort of pushing back on, on this, this uh, historical endeavor you went on, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I think you did as well. I went to Stone Mountain High School of all places and, I remember, um, I remember in social studies that we were taught uh, the, the the easy, uh, incorrect answer to why the Civil War was fought was slavery, and in fact, the smart answer, the, if you really had it together, was states' rights. And yeah. I mean, I grew up thinking I'm smart because it's not slavery; it's states' rights. I was taught that, and so. You know, as I thought about your what you put together, and then oh, by the way, I wanted to mention um, I when I, I didn't know you were connected to King in the Wilderness, which is an HBO documentary, which I had watched before. I rewatched it in in anticipation of speaking with you. It's so great, and I just thought like, are are, are have you found schools, colleges, universities, even high schools using anything you've created around this to to educate the students, or has has not, has that not happened? It's happened to a limited degree. You know, um, in 2013, I put out a short book um, called The King Years that has um, storytelling excerpts of of what I consider the top 20 or so moments in the civil rights era. It's drawn from the language of of the trilogy in the sense that it, it drops into a storytelling narrative version, not an analysis of it or anything like that, but I'm... Uh, like the first one is King's first speech in the bus boycott uh, when he discovers his public voice. Um, And you can describe it in a detailed way, not only because there were a lot of people there, but because some saint made a recording of it. And you can literally hear the dynamics between him and the audience. That's the first one. Um, And that book, that little short book, it's less than 200 pages, is dedicated to teachers of history and students of freedom um, for precisely that reason, because I've often had teachers tell me they like the storytelling, but they can't ask their students to buy a, a 600 or 800 page book. And um, so I, I did do the excerpt. Um, I've been trying for years to get feature films made off my books um, with a lot of the great names of Hollywood involved. Uh, Jonathan Demme had it for five years right after Silence of the Lamb, Lambs and... Um, uh, well, Harry Belafonte and I uh, had a had a contract at ABC for five years. Um, David Simon had it at HBO to do um, a, a miniseries for a number of years. Um, but we never the, the 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 documentary you saw, King in the Wilderness, is the only thing I've been able to get on the screen. I've got I've got an Emmy downstairs for that. That was. Um, I wanted to recreate it dramatically with actors and a documentary is short of that, but um, uh, I'm happy to get that done. It's based on, my, on the third volume at Canaan's Edge mm. uh, about King's last three years. 
Well, I was thinking as you were saying that, like um, nowadays, gosh, it would be such a fantastic series. I don't even think miniseries. I mean, you could have seasons. The, the stories that you depict and the, th- the it's, I mean, the tension, the drama, it's, it's phenomenal. I, I hope I hope that happens. I did want to ask you about. I do um, too. I haven't given up. But, uh, I'm not going to say anything about it because it, it would jinx it yet again. And I've been around the track too many times. But um, there there's always hope for. Uh, 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 I think there are a million little mini movies in the history of the civil rights era. Yeah, and and again, it it will reach far more people that way, different people that way. So I think I think that's an important thing to happen. Um, I heard an interview. I have to ask this question. Um, I know you were asked it on the interview I'm about to mention. I'm sure you get asked it quite a bit, but you're talking with Bob Moses. You, you two were being interviewed. Um, and, you know, there was a, a uh, correlation being made between, you know, the sixties the and civil rights and today. And, you know, I think I, I, maybe this was recorded months ago, but I think you were saying like, this could be the start of another big movement or big thing. I, I was curious how you're feeling about that. It, you know, has, has your thinking evolved? And, and if it were to become a really big, powerful moment in American history, what else needs to happen other than people's eyes being opened, uh, which I think we, we would agree has started to happen? Well, um, I still think that we're on the tension between a, a ending ending a, a cycle of cynicism about uh, government uh, and even about democracy uh, that's run for 50 years. We, I'm, I don't presume that we're, uh, we're going to win that, um, but there are signs that that the cycle is turning uh, into a, a, a more progressive era, like the civil rights movement or for the civil war, for that matter. We don't have them very often. Um, the constant thing is that race tends to be at the at the center. Um, but I think what would have to happen, um, to me, the great thing about the civil rights era is that people wrestled with very basic things about the Constitution and how we relate to we, one another. How do you build public trust? Uh, what does it mean to be self-governing? How much discipline um, is, does that take? And there were arguments inside the the youth wing of the the SNCC and uh, the youth wing of the movement about how the discipline of nonviolence and letting yourself being beaten relates to the discipline of self-government that's presumed that's the basis of we the people in the Constitution. These are very, very fundamental things. And it's been a while since um, um, Americans have grappled with basic questions like, are we self-governing, meaning self-discipline, with regard to climate, um, with regard to the way we treat our children, with regard to uh, debt and waste, uh, um, with regard to voting, um, uh, because they're, you know, we still don't have an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. Um, We almost got one with the 15th Amendment, but people were afraid that it would imply that women should get the vote or worse, that Chinese workers on the transcontinental railroad would get to vote. And so they phrased it negatively that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of uh, color uh, or previous condition of servitude. Um, So we have a negatively framed, there is no uh, affirmative right to vote or for that vote to count equally, which would um, get involved in apportionment uh, issues. We've really been asleep to a large degree on um, on 
basic issues. I mean, my favorite example, and people tell me I'm crazy when I mention it, is that we've been stuck. Everybody has lamented gridlock now for more than a decade, uh, how bad it is. But almost never do you see somebody thoughtfully say, what is the basis of gridlock? What caused it? How can we get out of it if we don't? All we do is wring our hands about it and say it's terrible. Um, it's kind of like we wring our hands about executives who make, you know, $60 million a year and say that's terrible. But nobody says, how did that occur? And how are the rules of commerce written um, that allow that to happen? And is there anything we can do about it? Uh, we just, I get, what I'm saying, we don't yet see fundamental struggle over the basis of we the people and democratic government the way we did uh, in the civil rights era with Dr. King saying um, that what he was struggling for united spiritual and and civic voices. Uh, he put one foot in the Constitution and one foot in the scripture uh, and say equal souls and equal votes and miraculously never got attacked for mixing church and state because he he was so balanced in the way he did it. And um, you don't see that yet um, here. You know, there are a lot of people who know there's something wrong with our country and that we've lost our way and that cynicism um, is, a, is a real threat to democracy itself, you know, um, and and. So people want to do something about it, but I don't think that I can confidently say yet that that I see the outlines of another movement that was as clearly defined as Bob Moses and, and Martin Luther King defined the 1960s. Yeah, and one could argue, um, clearly, we're, we're taping this before the election in November, but one could argue that there's maybe a better chance of that happening were it to go the way I think neither of us want it to go. Um, mm -hmm. So um, last question on this, and um, you've studied this period of our history, you know, as, as much as anyone. I, I've written two books on leadership. I'm a student of leadership. And so I may be putting that into this question, but I'm just curious as, as Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968. Um, and, and you heard someone like Andy Young saying like, and nobody stepped up to lead us at that point. Um, you know, how much of that affected, pro you know, and certainly Nixon was elected, how much of that affected progress going forward? And is that maybe something that is, I don't know that it's going to happen, but that would be needed today is, is, is a leader to emerge that people can follow and get behind versus scattershot. How, how do you see that? Well, first of all, uh, the, 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 the sad truth, if you, if, if you saw King in the Wilders, you know, that when King was killed in April 1968, he was not front. He was in the wilderness already. So yes. that it was not like he was, it wasn't like after Selma three years earlier when he had right. the entire country saying we must mobilize. And, you know, nuns were showing up from, from St. Louis to, to, to march um, with people into the face of, of beatings. Um, so he had already kind of lost the country largely because of the Vietnam War, polarized people over, over violence. Um, you know, the hidden secret about why that's so potent to me is that um, race and race and war are united by the fact that at least in some degree um, divisions of race are military. They're, they're instinctively military. Um, um, the, there, there is 
it's why nonviolence uh, was what was required to confront it, because um, most people are very, very um, hesitant um, for non-rational reasons to say that slavery was grounded in violence. It certainly wasn't grounded in, in consent. Um, that was the only way it could be done. And, it, and in many ways, it was a study of applied violence. And um, most of that history was one of the things I'm trying to recover now in my current book. Um, the, the security system for 200 years of slavery, what made men feel safe to leave a plantation with 40 slaves, their wife and three children, and, and feel that they would come back and everything would be all right? Um, if we're concerned about national security today and the need for the CIA and 17 intelligence agencies, they were equally concerned then. And the institutional and political and, and military um, relations uh, that were made to secure slavery that way uh, through the slave patrols that have largely been written out of history uh, are, are an amazing story because we don't want to think that slavery was based in violence. And to a certain degree, all race relations since then have been placed in violence, uh, grounded to some degree in violence. That's a, that's a very, very difficult question. But if you take um, a, a suburban white person and, and drive them into a black neighborhood, uh, you will feel a military instinct often and vice versa. Um, and to get over that is, is a huge challenge. And, um, and it goes to the basis of what Dr. King was struggling with. How deep are the wells of democracy that say we can respect votes and deal with each other as fellow citizens and build bonds if we have the discipline to believe in this constitution uh, or, and in this Christian faith, which, which has redemption and transformation. Um, so... Um, you know, your question was, where are we on the scale of a major movement? I think we're in the late 50s with an, a lot of percolation, a lot of things bubbling around, a lot of people saying we can't sleep, we can't win World War II and say we're the embodiment of freedom and still segregate black Americans. That, that registered on people, and now it's registered on people here, that we can't say we've had a black president, we're in a post-racial society, and then see what happened to George Floyd after what happened, you know, in Mother Emanuel Church with Dylan Roof shooting, you know, that these things happen too much. There's, there's something wrong. So I think we're like the 1950s the late 1950s with a lot of percolation, but I can't really say yet that it's going to come to fruition the way it did in the 60s. Right. Well, I appreciate that perspective. I'm curious, uh, you've done lots of interviews and given lots of talks. I'm curious, is there a question or a topic that you're surprised people haven't asked about and or that you would have me ask you? Uh, I'm, I'm constantly um, surprised by how skittish people are about the concept of nonviolence. Um, to me, uh, it was the most powerful uh, and influential doctrine in the early 60s that opened doors not only for black people, but, but for women, for senior citizens, ultimately for gays and lesbians. Those, that, that, that inertia for equal citizenship was started by a black-led nonviolent movement um, 
and there, there's no question about it. But nonviolence became passe very quickly, uh, and and a lot of the a lot of the practitioners from that era are embarrassed uh, by it today to the point that they deny that they were nonviolent. Um, that's because nonviolence is not popular. Uh, it's it's considered not not brave, not 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 valiant. Jeez, um, I think it's the most brave when you read these stories, John absolutely. Lewis. I mean, just taking punches. Oh my gosh! Yes, but look, John was a friend of mine. I was at his wedding. Uh, he was on that delegation. He, he gave me the job in VEP, uh, and and we went to Chicago together when I was twenty one with Julian. Um, so. I've known him for a long time. Um, he's venerated now, but people just mention nonviolence. They don't go into it. They don't discuss it. They don't discuss why he became so steadfast in it and what it meant. And what it meant was he was thrown out of SNCC um, because yeah. black power was taken over and he was Stokely. too, we shall overcome. And we're tired of that. And the only way he got to be venerated for for his nonviolence is that he kept it steadfastly through a career uh, that included, uh, you know, um, 30 years in the Congress and, and, and being the chief sponsor for the African-American History M Museum that sits now on the mall right next to the White House. Um, so that's a huge career. But people say he was nonviolent and they respect him. Um, but nobody studies nonviolence. Nobody even realizes that... Um, People run quickly to the notions that nonviolence is exotic and weird, um, that it's for Gandhians and people who don't want to step on insects uh, and, and who want to fast all the time. And, and they ignore the essential message that Dr. King said was that if you believe in democracy, which is a system of votes, you believe in nonviolence because nonviolence is nothing but a vote is nothing but a piece of nonviolence. And we have somehow managed to govern ourselves. And it's an issue in this election uh, that we will respect votes over what happens in a lot of countries where uh, people don't pay any attention to votes. They pay attention to the militia checkpoints and, and, and you know, and whether Putin can kill all the opposition, um, you know, we have a tradition that that is grounded in nonviolence, but we're not really interested in how nonviolence advances. Um, um, I, I've said a few times that the the only place I've really heard where they study it um, um, objectively, without you know, everybody has their pre you know, violence is a is an emotional subject. The only place where I think they study it like an intellectual subject is the is the National War College, the military officers, because they want to know what violence can and cannot do, and they don't want their men killed uh, on orders from politicians who want them to accomplish militarily something that's inherently political, um, because we don't want to study and get deeply enmeshed in the uh, the capacities of violence and nonviolence. Um, and and so um, I'm sad that that it's not a subject that is offered and studied on college campuses because I think it's you know our culture suffused with violence and violence in war games and in on TV shows and every everything like that. I, I think people would be would be curious if it would be great if people built up 
a capacity to think about uh, violence and nonviolence and, and what it does. And that is one of my biggest disappointments. I'm almost never asked about what happened to nonviolence, what do I think the capacities of nonviolence are, um, um, why did Dr. King stick with it, why did other people uh, leave him. Um, my interviews with Stokely Carmichael about the Black Power March when, when he was uh, moving away from uh, nonviolence uh, were among the more interesting interviews I ever did. He said everybody assumed that that's when he and Dr. King learned to hate each other um, because that's the way the press played it, that, you know, that there was this huge split. Uh, he said, actually, we, we had amazing discussions every night. Uh, that's when we really became friends. And it was just me saying, Dr. King, why is it that only black people have to be nonviolent? Uh, otherwise, America likes James Bond and John Wayne. Um, why can't we be just like other Americans? And he said, you're right, Soakley. We never demand that people be nonviolent. But I, what I'm trying to get you to see is that nonviolence is a leadership doctrine. It's trying to advance the notion uh, essential to democracy of deciding things by votes. And in order to do that, you have to build personal relations and that sort of thing. And that's why nonviolence has made citizens and fellow citizens out of people and made our democracy more, more stable. That if we step up to violence, it's not that it's it, it's not that we're becoming more American. It's that we're losing leadership and trying to sh show the way for all Americans. You know, those are very profound uh, debates, and I don't think we're having uh, debates like like that today. Maybe they're going on in the Black Lives Matter um, um, sessions. Uh, I, I'm not privy to those. Uh, right now, or on certain college campuses, or or even on right wing se sessions where people are debating whether they're going to get killed by being uh, association with militias. Um, but as far as I know, those debates aren't happening. Well, th there's a scene in uh, King in the Wilderness um, that you just referenced, where Stokely Carmichael and, and Martin Luther King are walking together, and they're they're being interviewed, um, you know, where there's a, there's a guy with a microphone and he's interviewing both of them sort of one after the other. And, and it was masterful how um, King was able to essentially disagree with, um, you know, violence and sticking with nonviolence. And uh, I, I think he even goes as far as to talk about the, the fact that, you know, using the phrase black power is, is hurting the cause, but yet you can tell he is doing that in a respectful way with, with Stokely. I just thought that was really interesting. And I, I just wish everybody could read Parting the Waters because it is so clear as you tell these stories how nonviolent protests and marches and sit-ins were just the, – the, the, the white power structure did not know how to handle that. Um, and the sacrifices, it's absolutely a sacrifice, of course, and, and there were people who were killed, certainly beaten, but, you know, had they resorted to violence, far more would have been killed and beaten, and the results would have been far worse. I mean, it, just to, to watch, right, like, as they're moving into Birmingham and how Birmingham's getting incredibly nervous about it, like, it, I, it just seems, you know, and, and Martin Luther King never wavered from it, it just seems, to your point, so powerful, and yet... Right. It's never I don't know that I heard that word growing up in, in any of the education I had. Well, you know, um, I'm glad you mentioned that scene in King in the Wilderness, because I was so glad that footage existed of Frank, Frank McGee, the NBC correspondent, dressed up in that ridiculous outfit. <laughs> it was. 
interviewing them walking down the street and 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 they had a, a brief interchange that got into the subject a little bit what i'm saying is that stokely said you know that was a snippet of it but they would argue about it till midnight at night what are we going to do and um he said King respected Stokely enormously because by that time, Stokely had been nonviolent for six years. Uh, he had gone to jail 27 times. Uh, he had done uh, in, in Lowndes County, Alabama, the year he spent there, one of the most violent countries. That's where Viola Liuzzo was shot uh, and Jonathan Daniels was shot uh, uh, between Selma and Montgomery. He had spent a year there, the most remarkable service under the most difficult circumstances nonviolently. Um, you get PS, you get PTSD after that. It's like being in a war. It is an army, and uh, so um, King respected Stokely immensely. He was just trying to warn him th that by even the suggestion of violence would take off uh, like a rocket, uh, and it certainly dominated the press. You know, uh, re reporters. Dr. King became passe very quickly. That he couldn't even get his books published hardly. Um, so um, he was he was trying to warn uh, that I understand the reasons for uh, being weary of nonviolence, but if we abandon it, um, we may dissipate pretty quickly. And that's of course what happened to Stokely. He 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 left um, when I was interviewing him in the in the late in the 1980s. Um, he was kind of a lost soul. He would answer the phone ready for the revolution. Um, and I would say, Stokely, what's the revolution? And it was a little bit of Pan-Africanism, uh, a little bit of Marxism, and a little bit of, um, um, uh, a little bit of, a, of democracy. Um, but n none of it was satisfying and none of it took hold. And um, the great thing about Dr. King was that he said the only appeal that African-Americans um, had to contend with the depth of racial animosity in America um, were the deep wells of the constitutional belief in equal citizenship and that that's what they had to study. And, and that because that was about establishing a system of votes, nonviolence was, was a perfectly consistent tool uh, where the means and the ends uh, cohered. And um, rarely in history do you see a movement uh, analyze um, a, a tactical dilemma with lives at stake going that deep into the underpinnings of, uh, of a nation's creed. And, um, you know, like there's controversy today over the 1619 project saying that the American creed is irrelevant um, and, and, and that our creed is really uh, slavery as established in 1619, uh, which leaves us no hope for, or curiosity about why those founders created the first functional republic since the Greeks in 2000 years um, to escape 2000 years of wars among Europeans. They were trying to figure out how you could have a republic uh, freed from wars and coups and kings and, and oppression um, quite apart from race. Uh, yes, they were flawed because they had slavery, but that didn't mean that they were not trying to figure out a very complex uh, system of uh, an experimental republic uh, on its own right at the same time. Yeah, amazing. 
Yeah, it does. And, and, um, partly because I've, I've heard you on some interviews talk about these, these subjects, but, um, I I'm imagining a lot of this will be woven into your, your next project. You just heard part two of my interview with Pulitzer prize winning author, Taylor branch. If you missed it, consider going back to hear part one as we get into his experiences with president Bill Clinton in that episode. And as additional segments of our interview are released, I hope you'll consider checking them out as we get into some really incredible stories from his journey. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way, you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign-up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>